What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave, the king of rock and roll, Martin Swagger. What's going on, man? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, ain't nothing but a hound dog, my guy. How's it going? <laughs> uh, it's going all right. We uh, watched the Elvis movie. We will be talking about the Elvis movie, as well as a couple of shows and albums today, but we're uh, we're about to hit that summer lull, but we're we're still cranking out what we can, right? Exactly right. You know, it's not too bad this year. The summer lull, uh, TV slows down, but and there's not as many movies as normal per the summer, but still a fair amount of music and the shows that are coming out are shows I'm definitely into. So we'll we'll survive. Basically, we just have to get to August and then TV explodes and we're oh, yeah. we're set. So uh, if you wanna. Stay tuned for everything we're going to talk about during this summer lull or when things are exploding in August. Hit that subscribe button on youtube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Go to Spotify and follow the podcast there as well as follow our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist where we are putting all the tracks that we love from the year and that we review on there. And Dave, let's start with a artist that you're a little bit more tuned into than I am. That's Empress Of. Dropping a five-song EP titled "Save Me." Uh, were you looking forward to this drop? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I had been a fan of some of her past work. She's released three albums to this point. The last one, "I'm Your Empress of," back in 2020, and this is her first uh, release beyond any loose single since then. So, uh, I think. Anyone who had been aware of Empress Love was definitely into her. The thing is, she's not super famous, not super mainstream. She's since left her label and is independent, once again, on her own uh, indie label, Major Arcana. So I don't know if she's necessarily going to get more famous going independent. But I feel like if you're in the know, if you know, you know, with her music, because it's just kind of hard to explain, hard to put in a box, dance pop avant-garde pop music she's got a pretty large body of work at this point but i was a bit surprised almost with just how dancey a lot of this save me ep uh, is and that was a good thing yeah shades of more recent disclosure shades of uh almost uh flume you know type mm. sound on this at times i think kept up sounded a bit flumey at times to me some of the the synth production on that and i i was really uh just digging these five tracks makes me want to go back and dive into the rest of her her work because uh while you reviewed um i'm your empress of i did not listen to that album so i'm i'm very intrigued by these five songs and while i don't think i loved every song i think i came away being like wow there's probably four of those tracks i would go back and listen to again starting right off the bat with Save Me, which I think is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah. The drums in that are just, like, amazing. They they sound so spacey, but, like, the, the production around it, with, like, the, the strings, the no-no-no-no, just, you know, it sounds so incredible. Yeah, I, I love the title track, Save Me, a lot. I, I think exactly how you put it. The drums are very distinct, and then the very uh, specific strings when they come in briefly, when they do sounds awesome this was the lead single for the ep and i think that's a song that could easily blow up you know given the right circumstances i feel like that's a really engaging song and what's really cool about empress of too this has been the case for some time is 
not only does she write or co-write all of her songs, but she produces or co-produces all of her songs too. Very uh, talented, multifaceted artist. And I think listening to that song, Save Me, such big, uh, loud production. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, really, really talented person to kind of have all that land. But I mean, it's not something that would be out of place on like the Calvin Harris album coming out in August yeah. either, you know? But yeah. You're not, getting it from someone with all this huge backing. No, I, I completely agree. And it's interesting on the EP because I feel like it almost kind of goes like one on one off. Cause save me sounds so distinct, but then dance for you is kind of a like straight pop track. You know, that I feel like that you could hear that on like a Dua Lipa album and not, it wouldn't feel out of yeah. place. Um, and then turn the table is a little bit, uh, I don't know, more, uh, unique i guess like it's it's so like toned down and she's yeah. kind of whispering on it but the the clicking like percussion in the background really stands out as being something that you don't usually hear and then like i said kept up the the synths on that just remind me so much of like a flume track or something it's a lot more trancy a little bit spacier so uh, really impressed i think the only one i didn't like come away loving was cry for help which is the last track on the ep but I hope that this is a precedent for something bigger coming from her later on in the year, because definitely want to hear more from her as soon as possible. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's one of those things that if people stumble across it, it's like such a pleasant surprise, because it's like, I, I totally agree too, of the four of the five tracks really like sticking with you, but also being unique kinds of songs in their own right, and seeing that much variety and uh presentation of talents on just a short ep is really impressive obviously yeah absolutely we're gonna be talking about empress of whenever she's dropping new music so stay stay tuned and follow that now Selja best of 2022 but let's move on to soccer mommy sophie allison dropping her newest album sometimes forever and last time we were talking about her was two years ago with color theory and we were a little bit late to the uh, Sophie Allison train, I guess, in terms of reviewing. We did talk about um, your dog on our end of the year best songs list in 2018. I think it was an honorable mention. I, I might have put it on. I can't remember. But um, Color Theory, we I think we liked, but I think we were kind of like, you know, it didn't live up to some of the hype from um, the 2018 album Clean. So I we were like, there's probably better things to come from Sophie Allison, but she's always putting out stuff that's interesting in that uh, alternative rock space that is so dominated by women right now. Do you feel like Sometimes Forever stood out to you as, as a, a alternative rock female artist drop recently? Yeah, well, I think that's a thing. Soccer Mommy's definitely held up as one of the the new pillars new paragons of indie rock you know obviously one third of boy genius alongside uh wait is she in boy genius no, no she's no. not in boy genius but she's like a contemporary of, of the, the trio in boy genius right yeah. and uh i i think for me your dog you mentioned off the debut really impressive coming off someone who made like demo demos at her college dorm room like maggie rogers like the, the origin story is pretty famous at this point and color theory, while I was a bit up and down on it, I did love Circle the Drain, 
the biggest yeah. hit off that album. That was in my top 10 of 2020. And I think the reason I like Circle of Drain so much is that it's indie rock at its at its lightest, at its poppest in sound, even if uh, lyrically it's still pretty dark, pretty, pretty sad girl, as we come to expect from uh, this sort of thing. So, you know, going into Sometimes Forever, the third Soccer Mommy album, but like she's so, so established at this point for, you know, the kind of artist she is. It's like, huh, wonder what this is going to be like. And while I, I did not find it as uh, enjoyable to my personal taste, I was definitely impressed with how unexpected some of the developments are on this album. And I think that's really cool. She, uh, Sophie did not play it safe with this no. at all. And that's uh, obviously commendable. Yeah, you know, just talking about Empress of and kind of how it felt like every other track kind of was going back to like a certain type of sound or idea. I really felt like that was almost how I experienced sometimes forever because it feels like one track will be a very uh, traditional alternative rock sad girl track. uh, And then another track will be something that is just totally unexpected, something completely out there. And I don't think there's a better example of that in the album than the first two tracks, Bones, which is very much, you know, a track you could find on a Julian Baker or uh, Lucy Dacus uh, album or something like that. And then you go to With You, the next track, and it starts off with that, like, amazing electric guitar, like, de- like descending, and you're just like, ooh, this is so singular. Now, some of the lyrics and some of the general uh, concepts that kind of play out in the song go back to a more traditional alternative rock space, but you just kind of have these flourishes throughout that you're just like, ooh, I, I, you don't usually hear that on like a Phoebe Bridgers album. And I think that's what sets Soccer Mommy apart is she is willing to push the boundaries a little bit more than uh, some of the, her contemporaries. What, what tracks stood out to you or what were the swings that you really liked on this? Yeah, I think, excuse me, I think there's two pretty easy ones to point to, which happened to also loop into her collaboration on this album with Omnitrix Point Never. Definitely not mm-hmm. something I had expected to see her yeah, go down no. in terms of the road, but Darkness Forever and Unholy Affliction. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two in particular, it's like, wow, like, I'm not shocked at the darkness in the lyrics, but like to, to bring it out in the instrumentation and the song craft uh, in such a electronic way almost as far as indie rock goes it, it was it, those were the songs I was like wow it's like not, definitely not a song like that like my cup of tea I'm not going to run this back but it's also just not something I expected to hear on this either yeah no I completely agree um, you know Unholy Affliction just I, I think that song is pretty like very cool you know like the way that her vocals are so like distorted almost kind of like coming through like a bad radio kind of and with like the drums just like whirling around it i i love the sound in that and then you like you mentioned darkness forever it's (laughs) it's really just driven for most of this by this like thumping but slow bass line until like kind of the end when it really like kicks back up and definitely unique sounding on the album and definitely stands out um really impressed with her going for and i think both songs work pretty well for this album which is kind of looking at like success but like the the darker sides of success in a lot of ways um 
were there any tracks that you found yourself really loving? Maybe because I know you said you didn't love everything on it. Yeah, you know, I'd say Shotgun's probably my favorite song on this. Just the the snares there really stand out overall. Just the instrumentation's pretty groovy. Again, probably because it's the latest song I'd say on this album. I also like mm-hmm. the last track, uh, Still. Just thought the acoustic. Uh, guitar sounded pretty good on that but i think overall the the reason that i struggled with this album more than anything else was i just kind of struggle with uh, the vocal performance on this not so much that's a bad vocal performance it's just that it's kind of intentionally washed out amongst the instrumentation amongst the production and Mm -hmm. that kind of haziness is just not what i'm looking for yeah, it's almost like shoegaze-esque at times, you know, where you're almost like, where does her vocal start and some of the instruments begin? But um, I, I do enjoy this because it does, it does feel so singular compared to, I mean, we've got an album from each one of them in the past year and a half, I believe, you know, Dacus, Baker, Bridgers, uh, Lindsey Jordan, and now right. Sophie Allison. So um, yeah, I agree. I think the ones you, I think Shotgun really stands out. Feel it all the time. Also, kind of has that like cool, like very like pronounced um, guitar playing, which I think is really great. I, the guitar playing on this is so awesome. You know, there's a couple of tracks that if you really tune in, like the lead guitar is plucking away in ways that you just don't really hear a lot on alternative um, albums right now. So I really enjoyed her playing on that, but. Yeah, I, I like this album a lot. I think it's, I think Sophie Allison really is just such a singular artist in that sphere right now. And if you had to pick like your top three, you know, Bridgers, Jordan, Allison, Dacus, Baker. Yeah, I'd say Lindsay Jordan, I'd Snail Mail is my number one just because yeah. I loved Valentine the most out of all these recent releases. Hmm. Yeah, I think I guess two is Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, and then I'd see, you know, three. I mean, I love Circle of the Drain so much. It might be Soccer Mom. I mean, like Julian Baker, I just never could really connect yeah, that, with her vocals personally. Yeah, and Dacus kind of, the album kind of came and went for me as well. I'd say those are probably the top three for me too. But we'll be adding a song from Soccer Mommy to our Nostalgia Best of 2022. <laughs> Let's move forward to Lupe Fiasco, who... Man, I, I feel like Lupe Fiasco is one of the most consistent and reliable artists in hip-hop right now. Probably not one of the most played or highest-grossing artists, but just like every couple of years puts out an album that is just really, really solid, and you're like, oh, I love some of the ideas in here. I kind of love what he's going for in here. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that that continues with this most recent release um which just came out this weekend music in zion um we talked about drogas wave but man that album kind of i don't know i don't know it just doesn't like it doesn't sit with me the way it did in that time and i'm wondering why maybe it didn't age as age with me as well as i as i thought it would Mm -hmm. i don't know if it aged poorly it just hasn't really like been an album i come back to do you find yourself listening to drogas wave a lot yeah, well, I think Drogas Light, Drogas Wave, and now this new al- this new album, his eighth album, Drill Music and Zion, they're all kind of of a piece. And you could throw in the House EP he made with Kaylin Ellis from 2020 as well. All these recent, like, late period uh, Lupe records, I, all, I kind of think about them all in the same way because Lupe has really found himself in terms of the intent behind his lyrics it doesn't mean the lyrical message of his songs always lands or is always 100% like well uh, communicated, but he's very clearly 
has a point of view on on things and we, you know that if you follow him online like he he has things to say and he's going to go about them he's going to talk about them and i think uh you know drogo's wave you know uh, there's a lot of like high minded big big thoughts you know stuff we would associate with like to be a butterfly kendrick lamar or something you know uh in terms of race relations and like the history of slavery and all, all kinds of things honestly and you know i think sometimes lupe those ideas might get in the way of like enjoying the song but other other uh songs too or maybe he uh takes a step back from that you get something that's so brilliant like uh stack that cheese off drove us wave which was a amazing banger but also a really thoughtful sequel song to hip-hop save my life one of the biggest and most celebrated songs of lupe's early career right and now we find him with this eighth record, Drum Music in Zion, age 40. And I think this is an album that's not quite as like overtly ambitious as the two Drogas albums, but mm-hmm. still has enough like under the hood in terms of like thoughtfulness that I think I appreciate it even more than those albums because it's kind of, I think it's a really nice like mixture of the two where it's like, there's still some like deep, you know, lyrics and observations on this, but these songs also just like sound great. And like, I want to yeah. just listen to these songs. And that's a great mix to have for an old head rapper. And honestly, like Lupe, you know, a forefather of Chicago hip hop, I would love if the most famous forefather of Chicago hip hop was still uh, this competent with his words, because Lupe certainly is. Yeah. You know, I, I you you basically summed up my thoughts on this well, which is like Lupe is obviously just, I think one of the most thoughtful rappers out there right now. And just always kind of putting as much into his projects as I think he can, but it felt like he almost just was like, I just want to make an album that has meaning, but just really is like smooth and like fun to play back. And I really just found myself bouncing the whole time listening to this i i really other than i think the first track which is like a spoken word type thing but kind of sets the tone for everything i i thought that this was a really really strong album and one that was just like fun to sit with and it's it's interesting because i i look at like where i kind of dropped off from lupe and it was probably like maybe right after lasers you know and then he has that like four-year layoff for making music now we've gotten three albums in the last five years and it's just like nice to see him kind of back making music that is like fun to listen to again and just feels so confident and like so grounded it's he really feel, it feels like he's really found his stride at this part at this point in his career right and i think he he's so far removed from the lasers era both before and after in terms of you know issues with the label but also trying to make more pop uh mainstream commercial music mm-hmm. you know um the show goes on yeah. so different from all these late period Lupe records, you know, but I think everything's Tetsu and youth in 2015. I think it's where he really started to find himself. And I still think Tetsu and youth is probably the best of the, the, these late Lupe records and one of his best albums. But I think drum music and Zion, it's just such an awesome, like distillation. Like he, he really kind of refined what he's been up to. And I think it's a awesome, you know, it's a short listen, but like, it's an awesome, like I think entry point for this, era of lupe and uh even though it's short you know 10 tracks 40 minutes he has a lot on this because he's so talented you know there's so many varied flows but also varied production styles and he's also while giving you all these kind of observations and lyrical thoughts and it's just quite impressive so i uh 
thing more than anything though i'm just excited that there's a lot of songs here that i want to hear again just as singles you know um i think one of the first songs that really like caught my eye was the third track uh autobato yeah. which has just a banger nature to it as a as a rap song but his flow on that is so awesome and so unique from anything else he's been doing lately and there's still like all this really smart witty wordplay on the song too and if you actually like you're like a hardcore lupe head like oh wait no this is lupe bringing us back to the uh carrera alter ego of his past too so it's like super rewarding if you're like a lupe like og hardcore fan too but if you're not it doesn't matter because it's just a banger it sounds great Mm-hmm. Th- this is one of those tracks where you can just see it being played at a at a live show and just everybody bouncing around to it and just like really getting in the zone for uh the the rest of the concert yeah i agree autobato is great i really even like Gotti the the track yeah. right before it, it mm-hmm. feels like you know when you think about early lupe and what really drew people to him things with like kick kick push really like brought in was like one of the first like jazz rap songs of that era that i think people were like oh this these two things really like mesh together really well yeah. and you just hear him like <laughs> really killing that sound on Gotti. um and it's just so smooth he sounds amazing you know over the track other tracks he's a little bit more washed out in terms of his vocals and this he's just like right at the top very crisp um what other tracks stood out to you yeah, uh, I liked along those lines of God. I really liked uh, Naomi just because yeah. that's just a dusty ass jazz rap song, so different from Autobato, you know. But uh, I kind of liked his wordplay about going to Roxbury, seeing the Malcolm X house, stuff like that. Um, Miss Mural, I think, is quite notable just because kind of continues the trend of, of course, his famous track Mural on Tetsuo and Youth, and then Mural Jr. on Drogo's Wave, another entry in the Mural run. First one's still the best, obviously, but he really likes to kind of like rhyme his ass off on these mural tracks, which is always fun. Um, I thought the last track too was pretty cool on on phonem, on phonem, which uh, you know, I mean, I forget how he says he says it, but you know, he says, rappers die too much. You know, he really has uh, his observations about the state of hip hop on this and i think really kind of closes the book on this record which is called drill music in zion a pretty pointed title for an album that's clearly not drill music but of course lupe fiasco from chicago the genesis of drill music you know 10 plus years ago at this point him kind of talking about the not just saying rappers die too much but i think kind of like bringing it all together in a lot of the themes and 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 thoughts that he often shares about kind of like the commercialization and over consumerism of art and about how like when rappers are dead they're kind of their their deaths are used to sell posthumous releases that didn't didn't even make it's like he actually has some like poignant uh things to say about something like this i I just i was pretty impressed too which is like the fact that he could weave something in like this into the album and connect it directly to his kind of satirical title for the album as well so yeah, overall, I was really impressed with this because, I mean, I mean, just in general, too, like 40-year-old rappers, you know, we say this all the time, it's a hit or miss for sure. But Lupe sounds uh, just as sharp as, as ever on this, honestly. Yeah, going back to the lyrics on um, on Fodem, um, I, I agree. I, I was really struck by, I think he said, I think the line is something like, what's the difference between a life insurance plan and a posthumous album? And I was right. like, oh, like, wow, that's, that's like a really like 
pointed but like you know wonderful observation and way to put it um yeah i agree i i, I just really think he he sounds really confident really settled um and grounded in this and if you're if you tuned out to lupe um after lasers i think uh you, you'll be pleasantly surprised to tune back in and see what he's been putting out the last few years so um drill music in zion an album i think we recommend any last thoughts are you ready to switch over to tv just a quick note too this album is completely produced by soundtrack who is also the producer of kick push and superstar of course his two early hits which is Again, just kind of a cool, cool note for the OG fans there. But yeah, I mean, this 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 one was a blast. I was really pleasantly surprised by this. Did definitely did not have expectations at this level for this album. But yeah, uh, shout out Lupe. And again, follow our Nostalgia Best of Twenty Twenty Two album. Let's talk Westworld now. Season four dropping on Sunday night. Dave, what was your anticipation level for Westworld season four? <laughs> My anticipation level for Westworld season four, whew, that was about as high as the life expectancy of a human and uh, uh, Dolores's path in season two, man. Uh, low. Quite yeah, low. Man. <laughs> I, I felt the, the exact same. Um, there's a few shows coming out in the next week, I guess these two weeks, where you're just like... I guess we got to do it, but like, man, why? I, 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 I guess that was the question I really was sitting with is like, why do we keep talking about Westworld? And I think yeah. it's because like, even though the show is incredibly flawed and the story is just nonsensical and too convoluted. And like, if, if you go to listen to these other podcasts that are recapping the last couple seasons, even they are like, half this doesn't really make sense like we can't even follow the plot and explain it to you in a way that's actually intelligible and like it that, right. that that's a really bad sign for a show it still looks great and the concept from the first season is so intriguing and there were parts of the first season where you're like this show kind of sucks but it also has some really great moments so there's something there and there's a lot of actors we like yeah. at least that's what i kept coming back to i'm like there's there's enough stuff here where something could work about the show why did why do you want to keep coming back yeah, I think that's a big piece of it, right? It's a huge production. It's an HBO production. You have so much talent. And, and by and large, the, the big A-list talent we have in here, they're all doing great, you know? It's, yeah. On the other hand, though, sometimes it's just like Jeffrey Wright, he only can look confused so many times, you know? It's not his <laughs> fault. You know, he's doing his best being yeah. Bernard slash Arnold, you know? It's, uh, it is what it is. Uh, you know, I think for me, it, it's... I'm at least a bit more intrigued about like about the show now because it seems like they've used all of season three to charitably like set themselves up for this new iteration of the series starting with season four. And it's kind of a more overtly science fiction show. And we've, we've kind of moved beyond the simple log line of like, Grand Theft Auto, basically in real life, which is what the Westworld going to the park phenomenon was mm-hmm. in season one. So it is cool that the show is quite removed from its hum- relatively humble beginnings. But like you said, I, I think that the plot is just God, it, it, it's quite incoherent, man. And I think what was so frustrating about season three is that it was like intentionally obtuse mm-hmm. and not actually effective storytelling it was just unclear 
what you were supposed to think when you watch things and what you were supposed to invest in. I thought this uh, season four first episode was pretty solid. You know, I, I think there's moments where you're like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who that is. Sometimes it's because they're brand new characters, but also we're so beyond the pale at this point with like actors having different identities, humans, hosts, dead, alive. You don't know what the fuck's going on. It's so hard to keep it all straight. I certainly did not remember a whole lot going in to no. this new new season, but you know, I, I think there was a few things I, I latched onto with this. I'm intrigued with Maeve in general. I think the mm-hmm. Tandy Newton character, the best character on the show, at least the most fun to be with. Seeing her, you know, link up with Caleb, Aaron Paul, a, a weakness of season three. You know, I feel like I kind of understand what they're up to right now, and that that's a win. That's a positive. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I'm definitely not as invested in. Uh, uh, fake Dolores, whatever her name is, Christina. And fake Teddy. Um, or, we'll get the Teddy. Gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the Maeve Caleb storyline is interesting. I'm like fifty fifty on the Ed Harris uh, Man Men in Black thing. Like, I, right. so that's I host. Th- that's host. Yeah. Harris, right. Yeah, because you know one of the main characters of, of the last three seasons, you kill off in a post credit scene and make him a host uh, after the end of the season finale. What a choice. But um, yeah, I, th- I think there's some good stuff here. I mean, the show still looks great and yeah. cool things happen that like opening cold open where, you know, a host men in black Ed Harris goes to the cartel and yeah. at the somehow, Hoover Dam, oh, no less. Yeah. How did he make them kill themselves? Are they just all hosts too? Is that the something with the fucking flies? I don't see. That's the thing. You have no idea. You're just supposed to figure it out later. Yeah, but it's something he hosted the shit out of them somehow. I don't fucking know. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess those flies maybe are supposed to be like making people into hosts. That I, I think that's the thing. The only person we know in the show who is definitely not a host at this point is Caleb, right? I'm pretty sure he's the only human. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's like the Jesus of this show kind of thing. I I really don't know. Yeah. Um, well, Dolores was the Moses in season two, so yeah. we're gonna try and keep keep the biblical allegory going. I, I perhaps that'll fall into place. I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess like what else about the first episode intrigued you? Did you like? Did you think worked or or uh, not? Well, I remember that Tessa Thompson is on the show, and I'm just a big fan of hers. And I actually yeah. thought, you know, T- Tessa did her best in seasons two and three. She really chews and chews on the scenery and has has some fun you know i thought it was a uh, the charlotte character who's now just like corrupted by dolores so it's uh fake f- fake charlotte you know we haven't mm-hmm. seen her in this new and this new season yet but her, her as the kind of entryway avatar into this like more corporate uh delos uh world beyond the parks and westworld i enjoyed um I'm not sure how much I'll dig her moving forward now that she's not herself, TBD, but I'm a big fan of her as an actor, so that's something. Is there anything that you think the show could do at this point that would really like win you back? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I just think if it's easier to follow, like it's a really low bar, but if I just kind of enjoy watching the show, that that's good enough. Yeah. You know, I'm not super invested in the overall plot, and I don't think I need to be. But just making it a bit more legible, 
I think would just go a long way in making it more fun to watch and talk about, you know, but I think there's just kind of fundamental issue when, as this first episode ends with Teddy coming back, you know, looking for Dolores. Of course, Teddy killed himself early on in the show, and like, there's just no emotional weight. There's no uh, gravity to Teddy coming back because the show, via other characters, just kind of like killed off like those kind of emotional stakes. Like, how many times did Maven? And Hector uh, mm-hmm. leave each other because Hector died or something, right? Like they keep, keep bringing people back, whether they're different characters or not. But like they look the same actor, like it just doesn't land. And yeah. I, I'd almost wish the show would like stop going down that road and just try and do something else, something maybe it's just something simpler. But like you know, that's why the Maeve Caleb stuff I think is pretty interesting, at least right now, because you know. The Maeve's daughter and Hector is like kind of not involved right now, and it's just kind of a revenge plot against host men in black, and them they just want peace and be with themselves and their family. Huh? I can't invest in that. That's an easy to understand conflict. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's 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 a hard line, right? Because when when Maeve is in her whatever it is bunker or like little cabin in the woods right. where she's hiding out right now and she's having flashbacks to Hector um you know when you think about it you would say oh if someone had to experience losing the love of their life over and over and over that would be really really painful and I can understand why that would be a hard thing to watch uh when that character is a robot it becomes a little bit harder to uh really i think sit with that and just kind of like find the emotional stakes in it and um maybe that's because i i don't empathize with robots i don't know bro but it's just it didn't work for me but i did really enjoy when mave has that shootout in the woods i thought that part was pretty cool and like pretty badass you know um i enjoy i i guess i enjoyed a lot of the action scenes in this first episode Right, and I think that's another thing too. It's like in the past, a lot of the set pieces have been really good because they're so big and so extravagant, and that's something else that's like fun to be with, especially as this show is kind of getting even more overtly science fiction. So that's something to look forward to as well. Also, I think like the setting of this first episode with when we're with Dolores, fake Dolores, it's uh, New York City, the Hudson Yards, the High Line area. Like, oh, okay, we're gonna be in like futuristic. New York, that's that's nice, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah but I mean, yeah, I we just gotta see what their ambition is with this season because we've seen them crash and burn with lofty ambition before, and we've seen them deliver kind of mixed results with so-so ambition when season one. So, you know, I I don't hold it up as like some prestige masterpiece. It's more about not knowing what to expect, but at least hoping that I can understand what it is that I'm not expecting when I see it, you know? Yeah. I, I, I will uh, I will say, it looks like reviewers are finding this season better than past seasons, so maybe some of these um, setups in the first episode really pan out and play well we'll talk about it when we get to the end but i think that there's some stuff to like from this first episode some stuff to maybe just still be scratching your head at but we'll see let's uh let's move forward to another premiere from this from just yesterday actually 
Only Murders in the Building, Season 2. Uh, we're just going to be talking about the first... Uh, did, you get, did you get to all of them? Or you, I, only got I did see two. One. Yeah, okay. Two premiered going week to week from here on out on Hulu. Um, and so you you did a lot of work catching up on Only Murders in the Building Season 1. What what was your takeaway? Right. I mean, it's not, not that bad. It's only five-hour yeah. first season, half-hour show, of course. And uh, notably is the biggest comedy on Hulu to date at this point. Big hit for them. Uh, yeah, you know, it's something that I was in, like, when it came out, and I was like, oh, there's a hit show on Hulu, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez, comedy. I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, not really my thing. I don't make time for a whole lot of comedies, especially the ones that aren't on HBO. But, you know, I know you really liked it. It's coming back for another season. It's like, ah, screw it. I have time right now. I'll watch it. See what the hype is about. And you know what? It's a show that I find compulsively watchable, but also kind of unremarkable. Like it's not, I did, I didn't dislike the show. I also didn't really care for the show either. You know, it's weird. Cause like it has fleshed out characters from our three leads, but I also didn't really love being with either any of those characters. Funny enough. Uh, I think some of the humor is, is quite fun to be with. Um, I was a little uh, put off by the end with like the lampooning of true crime podcast fanatics, true crime super fans, that kind of thing. It's like I get what they're going for, but it's like I just like couldn't care less about true crime so much that it's like <laughs> it's kind of annoying to me. Uh, in season two, you know, I'm like, all right, well, it's kind of just feels like a continuation of season one more than anything else, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, if you want to hear my thoughts on season one, go back to our uh, best of 2021 TV shows podcast. Um, I, I think there's definitely um, some things to like uh, about season two's opening, but you're right. It does feel like a continuation, a bit more of a like commentary on some of the uh, ridiculousness about this true crime culture. Um, but uh, you know, uh, when when the show came back, I really was kind of left with the same feeling I had at the end of season one, which is like, I really like what's going on with Steve Martin. Um, I, I just was not enjoying the performance uh, from, man, I'm forgetting her name. Um, Selena Gomez. Sorry. Selena. Yeah, and I, I think it's that she just comes across very flat, and I get that the character is kind of this uh, you know, traumatized, been through some really heavy shit in their life, young adult. Um, but she's just playing it so straight. And uh, the, I mean, like a lot of her quirks are like basically bagging on old people. And like, it's pretty funny, but like, I, I just don't know if it's enough for me to really like love the character. Martin Short's just ridiculous. Like being Martin Short, which, you know, right. let him vamp, do what he's going to do. But yeah, I, I didn't really love a lot of of what I was getting there. I'm, and, I, you know, then you get Cara Delevingne coming in, and I'm like, right. she's just not a good actor, bro. <laughs> she's just not good at this, I feel like. You know, last time I can remember seeing her was Suicide Valerian. Squad? Valerian? Uh, I didn't watch that. Had to be Suicide Squad. And it's just like, yeah. man, I don't know. You know, you get Amy Schumer popping up. A lot more high-profile people. and right. Amy Schumer... Filling in for the Sting character in season one. 
which yeah. I think was a nice touch to have a new celebrity play themselves in, in that 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 way. I thought that was pretty funny. True. That that that's a, that's a good call actually. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Did did you like this first uh, the first two episodes? Yeah, it's the thing. I don't have like much of a new reaction to it because it just feels like such a continuation of something that they mm-hmm. probably weren't necessarily thinking about continuing all that much. Um, the Selena performance disappoints me because I actually really loved her performance in the uh, Forsaken Woody Allen film, A Rainy Day in New York. I thought she was like really tremendous with Timothy Chalamet in that mm. movie. Uh, Selena has like a, a deadpan to her performance and to her roles, but she had just, I think, a bit more of a tantalizing energy in that character, in that film. And this time, she's, like you said, she's just so reserved. And when you combine that with the kind of sardonic deadpan performance that she does and this character does it's just kind of like i just want kind of i want more from this character you know um you know i think it's hard for me to really like invest further in some in in martin short in particular just because he's playing a such a narcissistic self-centered character that this kind of has like a baffling like life story it's like it's hard for me to feel bad for some guy who's clearly like living beyond his means at an expensive apartment that he can't afford like i'm not gonna feel bad for you making poor life decisions you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think if anything steve martin's performance probably the one that i really latch on to here i I really find the stuff going on with brazos is he's like uncle brazos you know to be really like funny but also like reflective of like the stage of life that he's like so obviously battling um I think that's really great. Also, I, I haven't watched episode two, but I did like the cliffhanger in episode one where, you know, he's the, the painting uh, of the uh, tenant right. or the president of the board who was killed is hanging up in his uh, apartment. And then he says it's his dad who's in this erotic painting. I just, I'm very intrigued to see where that goes. But um, yeah, the like the art stuff. Cara Delevingne showing up in like that whole scene really I was like Ugh, I don't know about yeah. this we'll say uh, there's a bit more spice to the Cara Delevingne character in season two so episode I'll two it. okay uh, episode two I'll leave it yeah. at that um, all right yeah looking forward I to mean, the Oliver one-liners are kind of fun you know but like mm-hmm. I think there's like twice they make like a millennial joke and it's like just kind of annoying because I feel like this Selena character actually no she's playing her own age I think in this character I way. think so yeah but uh yeah uh it, it, yeah like I said it's kind of just a it's a bit unremarkable to me like it's not like the funniest thing I've ever seen nor is it like the most expertly conceived concept you know it's like it's kind of funny that this this is Hulu's biggest comedy you know well, comedy is, uh, this is the state of them right now. Like you mentioned, unless it's on HBO um, or it's uh, not what we do in the shadows, like it's pretty, pretty rough in, in those waters. I mean, one of the biggest comedies we, that we haven't talked about is, uh, yeah, Elementary. And again, that's just one of those talking to the camera, you know, mockumentary type shows. Workplace like, sitcom. Yeah, just very down the middle. So. Uh, I think there's a little bit more to that show because I've seen the one or two episodes of it and they definitely get into some more thoughtful topics, but uh, yeah, uh, comedy's not, not where it's at, at the moment, but uh, I think if if you like comedies, it's, it's, this is like Dave said, very watchable, so you got some time to kill, you can fill it with that, but let's move forward to a show I'm 
much more excited to talk about. Obi-Wan Kenobi finishing its first season, maybe only season, we, we don't know quite yet. Conceived as a limited series, as they said. Dave, I mean, you're, you're a big Star Wars fan, I'd say. Big Obi-Wan Kenobi fan. Big Ewan McGregor is Obi-Wan Kenobi fan. Yes. Where are you left after this season? Are you still as big of a fan? Are you still big on <laughs> Obi-Wan? I'd have a hard time listening to someone tell me they somehow like Obi-Wan less from the movies, <laughs> less because of this show. Like, that isn't, that, that's a bit extreme to me. Through the yeah. first half of the season, people thought he was being a little bitch boy. They thought they had uh, made him non-masculine or something along those lines. Yeah, I don't respond to those people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think uh, I was satisfied because some of the things I wanted to see most on Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is by its existence a fan service enterprise, the things I wanted to see most, I got and I was happy with. And it's been a bit puzzling to me to see a lot of reactions, a lot of professional reactions to this series as an example of like Star Wars stuck in the past, as if that was not the only outcome of this whole show, which is about the time between movies, between two of the famous, most famous characters, two most famous characters, almost, in, in this franchise. Like, I don't understand like these like high expectations for. Star Wars giving something new. This is not the Acolyte coming soon to Disney+. Plus. This is not even the Mandalorian. This is Obi-Wan on Tatooine getting off to some adventures before he eventually meets Luke. Like, what else did you expect was going to happen? So having those expectations properly set, in my opinion, the things I did get, the things I wanted to see, I was pretty happy with. There's flaws to the show. Some decisions, you know? And I think a big part of that is this was a series grafted out of the original concept of an Obi-Wan Kenobi spin-off film, just the way the Book of Boba Fett was a product of a dead Boba Fett spin-off film, of course, both of these following the underperformance of Solo, the movie. So, you know, I think all things considered, I think it went pretty well. But yeah, there's there, there's quibbles to have, of course, but I, I had a good time. I thought episodes four and five landed the plane for me, and they really needed to, I think, because of the way that the series had gone to that point so i was satisfied yeah you know i left i left satisfied but with some definite questions um i, I think definitely the the strongest parts of the season are when the obi-wan and darth vader slash anakin's relationship are being explored i think when they lean into um obi-wan versus uh what's her name reva reva yeah reva or obi-wan with young leia that stuff was not nearly as fun or compelling to be with. And I think if, if anything, him interacting with Luke and Leia as children, just, you know, adds questions to uh, the star Wars canon. That is just like, you know, they, they're rewriting this stuff all the time. They obviously don't really care about all this stuff adding up. And they're like, it's a story, it's movies, like whatever. But it definitely is like a little confusing when, you know, Leia and Luke are both like, huh, you were on tattooing this whole time, and I, you know, you you never met him until now. But like, you knew Ben. Did you know Ben? Like, no one was like, yeah. Like, well, they call him Ben, but then right. Well, I think Luke, Luke knew of old Ben, but like, yeah, whether they had met was kind of nebulous. But I, I mean, this is nine years 
before A New Hope. I think everything's still pretty legible in terms of the continuity, but that's why I don't want a new season of this. I just don't think there's really anything to gain beyond the emotional, cathartic moments that are the highlights of the series. There's nothing left to gain anyway from a new season, but also, as you're saying, continuity in canon is just too fixed at this time that just constricts your storytelling. I just don't think there's anything like left to retread, you know? Uh, but yeah, I think that was also like a challenge. It's like, you know, some people have these canon questions. I was like, that was kind of inevitable that when you made the show that that was going to come up in some way, you know? I don't think most of us didn't see Leia coming, you know? And I also didn't think her role would be as big as it was. But I think for the most part, they kept it uh, pretty pretty straight, you know? Uh, I think the Reva uh, arc is obviously been one of much uh, discussion, especially because Moses Ingram has gone through a difficult time, unfortunately, due to people going beyond the pale in terms of discussing her character and just being overtly racist and abusive to her, which is obviously unacceptable. But overall, I was pretty satisfied with the the Reva arc. You know, I think the, the, the perhaps the biggest weak point of it is her actually going to tattooing at the end in the finale and like chasing after Luke before she kind of totally uh, realizes that that's not what she's about anymore. I get why they did it because they're kind of setting her up to be used down the line if they want. But also, don't you don't you think in episode five would have been actually even more satisfying to see her actually just get killed by Vader after Vader completely punks her? Like I thought, Vader in episode five was so satisfying, just like he was in episode three. I think they really nailed it once again in showing Darth Vader and his power and his mystique on the on screen in the series. But like having him defeat Reva just with the force, you know, not even really having to engage her with his lightsaber, you know, it's like awesome to just see that, that use of power, just like the way his brute strength that he used in episode three to overpower Obi-Wan when he was, you know, uh, rusty in terms mm-hmm. of the force and whatnot. Right. But I feel like they, they kind of like had had all the, the, the payoff with Reva in episode five. And we didn't actually need to see her go to Tatooine. <laughs> You know, I I actually was like a little shocked when I like saw her on Tatooine. I was like, really? Like she's still? I guess that Joel Edgerton wouldn't have just signed on to like have right. a couple lines. Got to do something. something. Yeah, and and Baru, you know, put put some exactly. respect on Baru's name. But um, yeah, I I thought that didn't work at all. Um, honestly, and I agree. I think it would have been a fine ending for Reva as a character. I I I didn't hate the character. I I think um. I didn't know if I loved the performance uh, in it, but uh, or by uh, Moses in it, but um, I, I the hate that she's getting is absolutely ridiculous, and just why people hate this fan base so much. Um, I, I definitely loved seeing Vader show his power, and I I really liked even if the final episode has some flaws to it and some things that you know you can nitpick having. Vader lose to Obi-Wan in the way that he did, you know, kind of tying together this flashback fighting sequence where it just kind of shows how like Vader is not this like tactical person. He's like fully emotion driven and Obi-Wan knows how to use that against him. So it's so well, but then you get that moment where 
you know, he, he breaks the mask and he does goes like, you didn't kill me, I killed me, or something like that. Whatever right. the line is exactly. Uh, you didn't but kill Anakin, I did. I, yeah, that's right. It's just uh, really, like, satisfying. Really good stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That if it nothing else, these last like three episodes with the Vader, Obi Wan back and forth is really cool. I agree. I think episode five was really great. Um, that like kind of like bottle episode at that base, I thought was awesome. Mm-hmm. And if anything, if if there's any character that's gonna like have a offshoot of this that we didn't know before, it's got to be O'Shea Jackson, right? Roken's coming in Andor season two, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, homie Roken. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think some of the best writing with the show, and the writing's been criticized, been been uneven. I think some of the best writing though is a lot of these original lines between Obi Wan and uh, Vader. There's times where they use lines from the past, you know, like uh, "I'll do it, my must," and then you will die. You know, like there's there's lines you recognize before, kind of used in the same way. But when there's some of the more original lines, like in Episode Three when they first meet, and Vader overpowers him and basically rakes him over the coals. Uh, literally he's like uh obi-wan's like what have you become and vader says only what you or only what you made me Mm -hmm. wow to have them call that back in the finale and 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 vader basically take him off the hook and be like no i did this to myself it's all me but you have that interspersed with like hayden christensen dialogue because the mask is damaged yeah i really i really appreciate that i thought you and mcgregor was really tremendous in those emotional scenes and also i think what's really nice too if you're a rebels fan when Ahsoka and Vader duel, uh, the other half of the helmet was cleaved off. And now mm. when Obi-Wan and Vader duel, it's, of course, the opposite half. And then in Return of the Jedi, Luke is the one to remove both halves at the very end, of course. I like that symmetry. Look at that. Uh, but yeah, also episode five, I think it gave us what I think a lot of the prequel fans were really excited about, which was some kind of flashback about Anakin and Obi-Wan before it all went down. Right. And I absolutely love that. I like stood up out of my, my, my seat and like my mouth opened when we start with that scene in that episode. And of course, that episode also is where we get the awesome Vader versus Reva stuff. The reveal that the Grand Inquisitor is in fact alive uh, for the non-Rebel heads who weren't aware, weren't sure. I was so satisfied <laughs> with, with episode five. And then even at the end of the finale, we get uh, there's Qui-Gon. We knew we'd see Liam Neeson. You know, um, yeah. very briefly, of course. But, you know, it's kind of just seeing Obi-Wan, seeing Ewan really, like, imbue himself into the character once again for those emotional moments. I think those are, like, the key takeaways with this series. And if those were landing, that's kind of, like, all there needed to be. Like, I, I didn't really need anything else from the show because, like I said, it, it was something with such little stakes because everybody involved is not going to die and the continuity is so constricting that I feel like it achieved about as much as it could have, you know? Yeah. You know, I uh, just want to say real quick, Qui-Gon actually, I think is a loser in this whole thing because <laughs> uh, he's like the only Jedi to ever get like stabbed and just die. Like everybody True. else just is like fine. I guess Obi-Wan in, in the original trilogy gets struck down, but that's kind of like a, a force type thing. Uh, Correct. Man, yes. I, Grand Inquisitor and Reva both survive uh, impalings. Qui Gon did not. Darth, Darth Maul, Maul got cut surviving, in half. being bisected. You know, I think 
it's more like the use of the dark side is necessary to survive such things. That's kind of in the mm. suggestion. I think that's what we have to go with because, <laughs> uh, yeah, could Qui-Gon have been force healed with if only someone was around with the powers that Ray learned at the end, you know? Alas, Obi-Wan of Mir Padawan could not save Qui-Gon's life. But <laughs> he uh, discovered uh, being a force ghost effectively and taught it to Yoda and Obi-Wan. So who's the real winner, you know? Good, good point. Yeah, I think overall, this is a, uh, I, feel, I think you, you said it right. This is satisfying in a lot of ways. You got a lot of really great things. Maybe it's not the perfect series. Maybe there's issues, but for being what it is in Star Wars, not meant to be like a flat, like a tentpole type thing moving forward. It's just a nice addition to everything. You get some more time with a character who is an actor who's beloved. So, right. And good stuff. Before we know it, Andor is coming. And Andor, of course, not shot in Manhattan Beach at the volume like the Mandalorian and Obi-Wan were shot over in at Pinewood, I think, over in England. Very exciting. And Rogue One, I feel like the popularity of that film uh, remains to this day. People love that film and how it, the darkness in it, so unique to, to Star Wars ultimately. And now we get to see uh, hopefully more of that on the screen sounds like they have a two season arc planned and we know season one's coming in august so that's exciting you love to see it yeah and before we know it mando comes out beginning in uh, 2023 star wars movies are still tbd but the the shows are chugging along and overall i'm having a having a good time with them more more than marvel right oh god yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right let's uh let's wrap up today with elvis the Baz Luhrmann uh, biopic, epic oh. biopic, I'll say. Um, looking at the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Um, boy, I, I, while we start here, Dave, what's your relationship with Elvis? You a big fan? That's a good question. So, you know, I think obviously Elvis is well before my time, but also, you know, my parents, my parents are old, but they're not they're kind of right after the Elvis generation, you know, my parents' friends that are older than them were Elvis people. So I didn't really like hear a whole lot of Elvis like in the home per se, but there's a lot of, you know, I think Americana trademarks and, and, and things about Elvis Presley, the man and some of his music that has obviously persisted to this day. And that's kind of my knowledge uh, of Elvis growing up and, I think, you know, the critical re-examination of the influences within his music and where the credit was and was not given is a, a particular interest, I think. That's more of a new, newer conversation. But um, I was definitely looking forward to this movie because I, I think the Elvis Presley story is obviously super ripe for the musical biopic treatment. Yeah. So uh, my, my mom, my mom's side of the family really loved Elvis. Um I had listened to him a lot growing up. I think I think I know probably the hits. Um, right. But by the time you know I was really getting into music, and when you go back, there, there's just such a delineation between Elvis's time, and then you get into like the Beatles right. and Rolling Stones, and that sort of music just interested me so much more. So I never really like dug in, and I kind of don't care about Elvis at this point, to be honest. I, I agree. I think the critical re-examination of his music mm-hmm. is really fascinating, but it, it kind of just like highlights how him as a celebrity was more, did more as like a bridge 
uh, of white culture and black culture more than him maybe being uh, this really talented genius of an artist. And I, I think I think the movie actually does a pretty good job of displaying that. But before we get too far into it, Baz Luhrmann, I think, is another person we need to kind yeah. of talk about is what's our relationship to him, right? And so I've seen, um, I've seen Moulin Rouge. I've seen The Great Gatsby, and that's about it from his. Right. I've seen um, Romeo and Juliet Romeo as well. Juliet. I think I've seen some of Australia. And so I really like Moulin Rouge. Uh, definitely his most beloved movie um gatsby got uh some recognition but overall not my favorite and so going into this i was kind of like you know if this is more moulin rouge than gatsby i think i'll really enjoy this and um i feel like it kind of fell in the middle i think there's some moments that really work in this i think there's some moments that i just there's some choice in this that really don't work for me what do you what's your feeling towards lerman though yeah i think he's a very interesting talented filmmaker a very unique guy who i mean this is only his sixth feature film you know gatsby was 2013 and since then he made the short-lived get down series on netflix you know he's takes his time with his projects but he's someone with a unique point of view he's a stylist right he's kind of in the same realm as Zack snyder honestly right he's got a clear point of view he's going to approach things in a certain way and it kind of makes sense that Elvis Presley is the subject of the Baz Luhrmann musical biopic, just the way that The Great Gatsby was the subject of his literary adaptation, a very uh, multifaceted, challenging to adapt uh, uh, American novel. That was the thing he wanted to adapt. Elvis, of all people, the big personality, that's his music biopic. You know, it all kind of makes sense to me. Uh, and I think there's a bit of Moulin Rouge in this movie for sure you know I, oh, uh so yeah i mean i don't have like a huge relationship with baz i think that's also just because like i said he doesn't he doesn't work, work a, lot. a lot yep but when he does work it's definitely something that's his and i think that's pretty commendable that he is a filmmaker with a unique style and vision even if sometimes i can get in his own way uh overall though i did enjoy elvis it's a flawed movie it's super long but I had a really good time with it. And I think a big part of that is because Austin Butler is really convincing as Elvis Presley. Yeah, I think I think Butler's performance is really great. And uh, I think the really hard part about the way that the movie is told, that the plot of the movie is told, is that it should have just been Butler driving the story. And instead, there's this choice to make tom hanks as colonel tom parker elvis's manager the person telling the story now that is a very lerman choice from my understanding of what i've seen and he does like to have kind of this like narrator type figure who's not the central character to the story but kind of telling of this broader figure in the story yeah but man i could have gone if tom hanks just like passingly came in through the movie and then back out i would have enjoyed this movie 110 percent more oh man i i really hated his performance as colonel tom parker what about you yeah so I, it's been getting pretty pan, widely panned and yeah I, I thought it was a poor performance he's just kind of doing a peculiar accent for this mm-hmm. character of course the colonel was from was it the dutch Netherlands? dutch american yeah. Right. So in nebulous beginnings uh, in terms of trying to claim he was the citizen of no country when he eventually got sued for his mismanagement of the Elvis estate, things like that. Um, 
But yeah, there's just so much of the kernel. And it's frustrating because often it kind of retreads ground, the scenes with the kernel, because you kind of already get it. And even though this is such a long movie and it moves so quickly, there's also so much stuff that's just not given the time it needs or really ignored when it comes to the Elvis Presley story. And I think that's why it can be frustrating to watch this movie because like, ah, oh, there's so much like good stuff. That's why the Elvis story is so ripe for this doc, uh, this biopic treatment because there's so much engaging pulpy material about Elvis himself. We don't have to get bogged down in the Colonel screwing him over every single time we get it, you know? Yep. Now, if, if Tom Hanks was better in the role, maybe it's more forgiving, but I was also kind of frustrated with the narration coming in and out in general. It was kind of like an annoying framing device. And because the Colonel's the one telling us the story, obviously this movie then is not equipped to uh, explain, even comment on Elvis's relationship with the black artist that he loved. You know, they do at least nod to it, acknowledge it, mm-hmm. but they're just not in a position to say anything further. Cause you know, I mean, it's being told in the moment. I guess it makes sense. They really can't present this like more modern view of everything mm-hmm. when they're talking about things as it's happening. But in place of that, we're just spending so much time with the Colonel. It's, you know, the snowman, it's just a, it's a bit of an annoying choice, but I mean, the set pieces though, like those key set pieces, when there's like these big Elvis performances, these famous landmark performances at various stages of his career, those scenes are really awesome and yeah, fun to be with. And in general, this movie did make me want to listen to some Elvis. And I think that that's a sign of it being at least somewhat successful. You know, I definitely went and watched the If I Can Dream performance from his comeback special. And I watched, I watched the real thing and like, it's fucking great, you know? And mm-hmm. that scene in particular, I thought was super powerful. Yeah, uh, I agree. There, there's like two or three set pieces in this that are just absolutely dynamite and just suck you in. And then the movie comes screeching to a halt when, you know, uh, Colonel Parker is screaming about how they have to do a Christmas song or, um, you know, <laughs> he's kind of like, oh, what's the scheme going to be this time? Let's put all this merchandise out. And you're just like, ah, man, like, I just really want to be with this character again. Um, you know, another issue I, I kind of had with the movie and i think this is more so a um issue with the framing device from colonel parker's perspective is you have these moments of huge american historical history that are mentioned martin luther king's passing and then rfk's uh, assassination and elvis is kind of like put in this position where Am I, are you going to say something and risk your commercial appeal or are you going to, you know, kind of continue to like not put yourself out there in that way in order to sell as many whatevers as you want? I, I, I did not know this about Elvis as a person that he felt, you know, had these political feelings and wanted this. And it almost feels a bit kind of like random in a sense, because I think when, when you know this, what people know about the story of Elvis is this like really quick rise to fame this like juggernaut who then kind of becomes a sellout and gets addicted to drugs and becomes fat and is just like this caricature of himself near the end of his life in his 40s and 
the pacing of this and the choices of what they choose to show just feel a bit confusing, right? Because you don't even get really to like enjoy him just like running around Memphis with his friends or running around Vegas with his crew. You don't really even get to like see his relationship with Priscilla that much. And it's just like what, what they chose to show and what stories they they chose to tell and what they chose to not show are just incredibly puzzling. And uh, it just, it would have almost worked better if they maybe framed it like, like jobs in a way, right. Where it's like Elvis around these three key performances and you get these three key performances as like the driving parts of of each act and then like these characters are popping in and out around each one you kind of see these conflicts arising in a sense but it's really strange yeah well i think there was such a great opportunity just as the real life story you know it's like you could have juxtaposed elvis's genuine like heartfelt desires of like things he believed in and, and things he felt about about race and society and stuff and you could have juxtaposed that with like how he also was super naive taking advantage of by the colonel and by his family mm-hmm. and the Memphis mafia and stuff like that. Like, I think there's such a, a s- interesting way to tell that story about someone who had greater ambition and then by due to his own failings and also the people around him was held back from ever really attempting that ambition. And you get like that kind of not a two with the, if I can dream stuff, yeah. but overall it's like, we just kind of keep it moving. And like you said, his courtship, his marriage, his whole life with Priscilla Presley is completely skipped over, let alone any of their past relationships uh, mm-hmm. after Priscilla leaves him. Like, none of that's there. And we don't even really get to see him, like, fall down the rabbit hole with pills and stuff. Just no. kind of nodded to. And like, oh, next thing we know, he's like, they're using amphetamines on him, but like, we kind of barely see it. You know, it's like, and like the hangers on that was the Memphis mafia and his incompetent father, like it's all still kind of just not really there. And we're just supposed to experience all this through the Colonel. So I think a lot of that is quite disappointing just because you see how much potential there is in the story because of the history of it all, you know? Yeah. I think my main takeaway from this is Austin Butler's a superstar dude. Like he's, he was incredible in this role by far the best part. And, you know, you think about what what this could do for his career. Um, I actually didn't even look at what movies he has coming out next. He's going to be in Dune 2, baby. Oh, yeah, that, that's right. That's right. I knew I, I did know that, actually. But, um, yeah, he the, he just feels like a rocky ship. Obviously, a standout from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tex. Right. But, really, this is a big break. And uh, I think about other like performances of these like big music biopics. And I think the one that this kind of like reminds me of most, maybe this is just like, I'm, I'm stuck in it a little bit Picking is it. I was going to say Val Kilmer from the doors. Honestly, mm-hmm. was that who you were going to say? No, no, no. I thought who were you going to go with? I, this kind of reminds me of Taron Edgerton and rocket man. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the easy comparison. And the movie yeah. feels like it too, you know, a bit like, I don't know. It's surreal at points, like almost right. like, but yeah, Edgerton was came to mind as well, but Val Kilmer in the Doors is just mm-hmm. like so mesmerizing, and and yeah. he actually sang, which I, I give Kilmer so much credit for because he sounds right. Really yeah, great. Uh, to Butler's credit, he act, out of necessity he sang all of the fifty songs because the recordings of those songs are not high enough fidelity for the film. <laughs> Crazy. And he sang for the later stuff, but there was also a lot of digital use of Elvis's actual recordings. So. 
it's still far from Rocket. Uh, sorry, Bohemian Rhapsody, where Rami's just doing you know lip sync karaoke stuff. So yeah, I mean, I think Butler, for someone who's thirty years old and has been a bit of a journeyman, you know, post Nickelodeon, like he hasn't had anything super big. The Tex Watson performance in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is clearly his biggest role of the date, and that's still a supporting role. To have him beat out Harry Styles and Miles Teller and uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson and Ansel Elgort for this role uh, and then crush it in the way he did. I think it definitely is a star-making performance. He's also going to be the star of the Apple series Masters of the Air, which is the sequel to Band of Brothers in the Pacific that's uh, been filming last year. So between that and Dune, we're going to get a lot more of Austin Butler. Now, Baz Luhrmann, of course, probably... Who knows how long we have to wait for him. That's the way he moves. He said his next thing is expanding Australia with the additional footage that was cut into a six-part series on Hulu. It's like, hmm, didn't see that coming. Yeah, no. But uh, <laughs> do your thing, my guy. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think, like I said before, this movie almost nodded to the uh, Black influences of Elvis more than I expected. Like, you have Kelvin Harrison Jr., always livening mm. things up whenever he's on screen as B.B. King. And you also see uh, Little Richard and uh, Big Mama Thor and, and stuff. And, and Arthur Crudup, played by our guy, Gary Clark Jr. Hell yeah, yes. man. Shout out, Gary Clark. Yeah, and like, oh, you see them there, right? And like, you see, like, mm-hmm. they do a good job showing that, like, yeah, Elvis, Elvis was just kind of like, he was about that Beale Street life. And like, people used to belittle him and make fun of him when he was nothing, you know? And mm-hmm. like, obviously the, the racism of the time and, and all that stuff. But like, that was just that was his thing. And, you know, I, I just wish there was kind of a more succinct through line to that, but yeah, like a few of his conversations with B.B. King, but, you know, I think that's just something that's kind of outside of Baz Luhrmann's uh, grasp, unfortunately. And also, like we said, the movie due to its framing device with the Colonel just really can't discuss that anymore. Cause obviously the Colonel would not have that perspective. So how'd you feel about uh, hearing some of the soundtrack here, Doja Cat, you heard Denzel Curry, a bit like Moulin Rouge bringing contemporary pop music into its musical, I yeah. guess. But it, it was kind of like random to me, like when I first started hearing Doja Cat as Elvis is walking up Beale Street, you know. I completely agree. I I, I didn't really work for me. Um, it was definitely a choice, but um, yeah, did not work at all for me. Uh, I, I I overall, I just really did not like a lot of this movie. I think there's really like those three key set pieces that probably saved it from uh-huh. being a total wash. So. Um, and, and Butler's performance, obviously, but right. yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to move off the movie if you have more to say, but I did have a question as like a, a final thought on it right. for you. So did you have any other comments? I think it's just nice to see that this movie was successful at the box office, winning the weekend, beating out Top Gun, beating out Jurassic World, um, you know, not too long ago in the Heights and West uh, Side Story and Dear Evan Hansen all bombed to various degrees. And we were like, huh, is the musical biopic, musical film for adults dead? Well, no. I mean, to see Elvis succeed in this way, and Elvis, not the most contemporary figure still, but that that's a nice sign for the overall health of the box office. So that is nice to see. Who's the artist at this point that you think you want to see a, a biopic about? Gosh, yeah. It's a great question. There's so you know? many documentaries now. It's like I know. I don't want to see the documentaries though. Yeah, it's more fun. Like like um, I still haven't seen Get On Up, 
when uh, Chadwick Boseman played uh, James Brown. Yep. I like once in a while there's ones that kind of sneak under the radar like that. Um, yeah, I mean, Walk the Line is obviously so famous too. Like mm-hmm. when you nail these with great performers, that obviously Walking Phoenix, like they're in as Johnny Cash, like there's such richness for this as like a movie form, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel I, like it has to be someone where the story is told, right? So you really can't be super contemporary, right? And I feel like, you know, uh, Elvis's closest peer in terms of best-selling solo artists of all time, his closest peer is someone who would have been amazing for this, if not for other things that happened in his life. That, of course, is Michael Jackson. So, mm. like, who, who is kind of, like, next down the line? You know, I, I don't have anyone that comes to mind, honestly. I mean, there's there's obviously people, but, like... It's really know, interesting. Like, to Rolling think. Stones or something? I don't know. Like, yeah, anything with the seventies. You know, there's so much fun stuff and the drugs and the girls and everything and yeah, classic rock. Like, I guess that's an obvious thing, but I'm not sure. I feel like uh, I feel like, like there's potential to maybe see a Kurt Cobain type documentary yeah, in like call. the near future. But I think the one that the one that I would like to see, although it could really crash and burn quickly, would be like a mccartney lennon type biopic where it's kind of like juxtaposing their relationship um right yeah it's It'd be awfully so ambitious to try and do that right after the beatles get back getting that's... so well received and being so popular <laughs> yeah but that, that's the one that definitely intrigues me most um you know i could maybe see them uh stevie ray vaughn didn't quite get there maybe a Jimi hendrix one you know right. with like woodstock or something like that and like and cool. i think i think they've tried this before too but like, yeah i'm sure they have right so i mean recently we had queen we've had elton john mm-hmm. um, but not gonna do michael jackson oh there's the madonna ones coming up right uh, that's Julie right was just cast Obviously, yep that's, that's a great, good one great 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 subject um oh wait Stevie we just had a franklin which was so so respects um did they, I think they're doing a Whitney Houston one too? Actually. That that'd be a good one. I'm sure they are. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think if there's any other artists that come to mind. I think yes. rap is interesting. Na- Naomi Aki as uh, oh. Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody comes out this Christmas. Yeah, that'll be good. Well, I'm sure there will be some, but just wanted to hear your your thoughts on that. We should wrap up there though for this week. What do we got for next week? Yeah, so next week, even though it's 4th of July, so some some stuff to talk about. Stranger Things, the conclusion of Season 4, Season 4 Part 2, coming out. New album from Burna Boy, very exciting. Uh, we'll be talking about The Umbrella Academy, Season 3, which is out now. And it's also time to make some Emmy nomination predictions. TV, so hot. Emmys, so competitive. Who's going to get nominated? We'll be talking about all that and more. Follow us at Nostalgia Pod on Twitter. Go to youtube.com slash Nostalgia Pod and give us a subscribe there as well. And again, go to Spotify and follow us there. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.